Salam and welcome to a very intriguing episode of the Claritas Books podcast. I'm your host Ramona Ali and today we travel back to 1895 and thereabouts to immerse ourselves in Islam in Victorian Liverpool where we revisit the unique eyewitness Ottoman account of Britain's first mosque community as observed by Yusuf Sami Esme. The book has been translated and edited with a detailed introduction by Yahya Burt, Riordan McNamara and Munire Zainab Magsadolu. And I'm delighted to be joined by Yahya, a community historian, and Munire, a PhD student at the University of Sussex. Yahya and Munire, it's great to have you with us. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us on Thanks for this opportunity to have a podcast about the book. Yeah, I'm really excited. I can't even tell you how engrossed I was with your brilliant introduction. And and by, at the time's jaw-dropping account by, by Yusuf Sami Esme, it's an absolute corker. And, and it's fair to say, it's not what you might expect. But before we get into all the intrigues uh, and the exposés, let's let's kind of go back a little bit and just say who exactly was Yusuf Sami Esmay and, and what led this Ottoman man to Liverpool? Yusuf Sami Esmay is born, as far as we know, is born uh, in Adana. He is a relatively well-connected uh, person, at least in, in the intelligentsia of the Ottoman uh, society. He goes to Istanbul to study in Köprülü Madrasa, which uh, shows that he was a bright student because otherwise you can't make it to Istanbul from the southern part of Turkey, probably on scholarship because that's how uh, the education system worked back then. So after completing his education uh, in Köprülü Medrese in Istanbul, he is appointed to Tanta in Egypt uh, in about 1885. Although we don't know his birth date, we can assume that he was in his early 20s uh, when he was uh, appointed to this position as a Turkish instructor in an Ottoman school in Tanta, Egypt. And from then on, he builds his uh, career as a journalist and uh, as a translator. He's kind of a pro-young Turk nationalist figure, I would say, to my knowledge, as far as I can see. As most educated Ottoman young men are, you know, which is not an exception, actually. And how he's interested in England and why he travels there initially, because this is not his first travel. It might be second or even third one. We don't know much about it, but we know that uh, this trip is particularly about, you know, research, uh, researching Liverpool Muslim Institute and its community and to find out uh, who they are, how they practice Islam and so on. So this is his uh, intent for this trip. But we don't know about his other connections in England or why he traveled to England in the first place, in his at least in his free, previous trips. But he uh, publishes travelogues of his first trip to England and also to Italy and Sicily as well. He's a quite colourful author, I think, uh, mm. uh, slightly sarcastic uh, yep, in some places, and he makes fun of himself too. Uh, so he's he's an interesting figure for sure, although relatively unknown. 
Thank you. That was a a brilliant overview. And can we look at the personality who brought Asmay to Liverpool in the first place? You know, who was Abdullah Quilliam and how did this Englishman become the sheikh of the British Isles? Yahya. Uh, Well, the story is becoming better known in the British Muslim community now over the last decade or so, particularly with the publication of a biography by Ron Jeeves um, 11 years ago uh, by Q Publishing. But let me just recap a little bit about uh, Abdullah Quilliam for people who may be less familiar with him. So uh, Abdullah Quilliam uh, was born William Henry Quilliam in 18. Uh, 56, uh, into a middle-class family. Um, they were part of the, the, they were non-conformist Christians, Wesleyans. They were socially progressive campaigners. Um, his mother, who features in this text, who later converts to Islam, was actually a, a campaigner for, for the rights of, uh, for women's rights uh, as a young woman and influenced a teenage Quilliam. Um, they were all temperance campaigners, which means that they campaigned against, they, they promoted teetotalism. Um, they saw alcoholism as a, as a source of many ills. So Quilliam grew up never drinking alcohol. He has a double training as a lawyer and as a journalist in Liverpool. He's very academically bright. Uh, and in the um, early 1880s becomes ill through overwork. I mean, his whole life he was a workaholic. Uh, his doctor says, you need to take a trip. You need to take a rest, cure, break. And he's has a passion for geology. Um, and he goes to Gibraltar in 1883 uh, to look at, to study the rocks. And while he's there, he he, he decides to go across the uh, Mediterranean to Morocco out of pure curiosity and encounters Islam and Muslims for the first time, uh, even meets some hajis on, on, on the boat uh, crossing the Mediterranean. Uh, and he becomes very intrigued. They invite him to Islam. He goes back and studies himself for a few years and um, converts privately in 1886 and then declares his Islam in a public lecture in 1887 uh, and begins to preach Islam. And uh, it was a remarkably bold step to take. Um, there was really no, there, were, there was no infrastructure, no support. For, for such an endeavor. And he found that a direct approach led to a lot of derision and hostility. So he ended up taking an indirect approach where he would in a roundabout way come to the topic of Islam at the end of a lecture on say, the dangers of the demon drink and call Islam the greatest temperance movement, movement in history and so on. And so he struggles hard for a few years and manages to gain a few converts uh, first couple of years and moves from temporary rented accommodation in Mount Vernon Street uh, to actually rent a house uh, now re- reopened by the British Muslim community in 2014 uh, in 18, Christmas 1889 uh, in Brown Terrace and off the West Derby Road where the Liverpool Muslim Institute finds its, its, its main home and where Quilliam then promotes Islam through, through the Liverpool Muslim Institute for up until 1908. Uh, What's remarkable about Asmai's text is that um, it shows how far and wide news of Quilliam and the Liverpool Muslims spread through the Muslim world in the Arab press, in the Urdu press, in the English language press of British India, 
in the Turkish press and so on. And it was a matter of great discussion and speculation. And this is brilliantly captured by Asma'i in his first chapter where he says, you know, the whole Muslim world was ablaze with speculation about about that Islam was spreading in England. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Brilliantly evokes brilliantly evokes it. And mm. it shows how brilliant Quilliam was uh, at exploiting, as a journalist, at exploiting the novelty of, uh, of, a, of a convert community in Liverpool, no matter how small it was. And it was small, particularly in the beginning. But, it get, but he gained great publicity through it. Uh, and it was, you know, of course it was a novelty, but it was also down to his great skill uh, as a journalist. Uh, and, you know, really the Peter Mendelssohn of British Islam, really, in many respects, you know, brilliant, brilliant sultan of spin. Um, and um, uh, and so he did, you know, again, the chapter, Smice chapter really captures that that kind of sensation of, of this community in the early uh, 1890s. And so was he kind of, was it, a, he wasn't really self-appointed as sheikh or was it, he, he got that through other means, through being appointed by some other body? How, how did that work? He, I mean, it's a complicated story, which if not totally unraveled, uh, a scholarship hasn't totally unraveled even in this text. Um, but, but what I can say is that he gained support and some kind of patronage and recognition from major Muslim leaders at the time. This includes the Shah of Persia, included the Emir of Afghanistan, and included, of course, the Sultan Caliph Abdul Hamid uh, II. He also claimed recognition from the Emir of Morocco. Um, uh, now, the thing is, not all of these claims hold up when you investigate the primary sources. Uh, certainly, we can say he had, he had, you know, the greatest, strongest evidence for formal recognition of him being a leader of British Muslims uh, does come from the Emir of Afghanistan. But we, but recent research by Matt Sharp in the Ottoman Archives doesn't turn up a single instance of an Ottoman document, you know, calling Abdullah Quilliam Sheikh al-Islam of the British Isles. I mean, at most, he was called president of the association of Liverpool Muslims or something like that. So what it seems from what we can tell, it seems like it was a self-appointed position in 1894, which came about through a nomination and a vote of the Muslims in the Liverpool Muslim Institute. But what I think is, what we don't really understand and what's significant is that the Ottoman officials were well aware that he was using this title for many years after 1894, up until 1908 and a bit beyond that. Um, but they never refuted him or contradicted him or whatever. Presumably they saw some use in him using such a title uh, to advance the cause of Islam and Muslims in Britain and elsewhere and didn't didn't think to sort of um, refute his claim that the Sultan had granted him this title. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Thank you so much for that overview. And Asmay's account of Quilliam and the LMI is pretty damning. I mean, Asmay says that you know, Quilliam's embroiled in an undercover brothel. There are assignations of money laundering. I mean, how much weight can we give to it all? Well, um, it's a bit tricky to answer that question because it will offend some people, even if I try to not not to. Do so because I know so many people hold K 
kill him and with good, good reason as a hero, uh, as a pioneer figure of, for Muslims in Britain. So I have respect for that and uh, I understand uh, the emotional sentiment surrounding it. But I think Esme is trying to be as fair as he can, uh, but we should also consider that he's in his early 30s at most at this point uh, when he visited LMI and observed the Muslim practices there and interviewed people in the community and around the city. So I think it's a truth universally acknowledged that we are more harsh in our criticism in our early years in life and with more experience and age comes a kind of leniency and a kind of more softer look at things we might have found or judged more harshly. So, you know, just take it into account that he was in his 30s. So, so you're saying he's quite a, almost like an overzealous young man, you think, and kind of saying, well, no, this is the way, but this is, you know, and they're not doing it the right way. Is that is that what you're kind of suggesting? I think so. I think he's uh, quite, you know, passionate and he's trying to hold the truth as he sees it. And uh, I don't think he's, you know, uh, manipulating or kind of changing the accounts uh, of people, you know, who talked to him and uh, told things about, told stories about the LMI. I don't think so. He, he's uh, staying true to his sources, but just in his overall view, he might be a bit, um, I think like if we asked him like 20 years later about his views, he might have been softer on certain issues. Uh, but that's my only concern. Other than that, I think it's, he's a trustworthy man at least in terms of things that he saw and he heard and he witnessed. Uh, I don't think he is manipulative or he's not even a pragmatist, if you ask my opinion of it. He's a bit naive uh, in his views and in, in his ideals of what a true Muslim ummah should be. So you have a cast of characters and many of them appear on the brilliant front cover. It's almost like a whodunit or an Oscar Wilde play. Nafisa Keep is one of them and she's an intriguing character. Could you tell us more about her, Yahya? Uh, Nafisa Keep is a convert to Islam. Um, she had only converted in 1893, quite shortly before she travels to Liverpool um, at the beginning of 1895 uh, in February. Um, she's an American divorcee. Um, she has been swindled out of her fortune by her her, her late husband and uh, has been left without any money. Uh, she had developed a career as a quite senior journalist working for a New York newspaper and had been its Paris correspondent for a few years and had become fluent in French. After the debacle with her husband divorcing her and taking her money, uh, that she'd invested in his newspaper and the fallout from that, which I won't go into now because it's too long a story, but you can look at it in the book. Um, she converts to Islam and she, um, uh, in New York, meets another famous convert, uh, Russell Alexander Webb, um, at, who, who had converted to Islam in India. 
um, and was leading a Muslim mission there and had the support of the Ottomans in New York. But she fell out with Webb um, on the grounds that he wasn't practicing Orthodox Islam um, and that there was financial impropriety in the way he was running his mission. Uh, and she got the Ottomans involved, but she wasn't paid any attention to. So she leaves New York and comes to Liverpool to learn from the true master of Western Islam, Abdullah as she saw him. Um, he puts it to work, working long hours um, uh, at her, uh, in his printing press. She's an accomplished editor, um, lectures at the Institute and writes several pieces while she's in Liverpool. But again, she becomes quickly disillusioned with Quilliam um, uh, for similar reasons that ortho practice at the Institute was not orthodox enough for her. Um, there was too much impropriety. And she felt also that there was financial shortcomings in the Institute. Uh, when when Asmaya arrives in Liverpool uh, in July uh, that year, um, his English is not great, but he's much more fluent in French. So, so Nafisa Keep is deputed to become his, his interpreter while he's there. So unsurprisingly, they grow close and begin to share a critique of the Institute that is reflected in Asmaya's account. So the, the Liverpool Muslim Institute is referred to as England's Church of Islam. How apt was that title? I think I think we have to uh, we have to give uh, understand Quilliam in his context here, and possibly in a way that Asmai couldn't, which is that you know Quilliam was self-taught. Um, there were no Islamic resources. He relied on George Sale's translation of the Quran. He relied on Washington Irving's Life of the Prophet. He was relying on essentially Orientalist sources to teach himself Islam. Um, and so when he converts to Islam uh, and starts to found a community of practice in 1887, what, they, what he really comes up with is a sort of a hybrid form of Islam, which is a sort of cross between nonconformist Christianity of his youth and, and Sunni Islam, as he could understand it from a few sources that he had available to him. Um, and so, you know, at least by the, when they get to Brown Terrace, maybe before, they had sort of set up a hybrid Sunday service. Initially, they were called divine services, um, held at a Church of Islam, as it was called, up until at least 1894. There was a problem for Quilliam in that once their community became known after 1890 in the wider Muslim world, he had, he had a kind of twin problem. One was that, you know, he had to use the language of Orthodox Islam to portray what was happening at the Institute, its services and so on. Um, and also all the sailors, Muslim sailors and other visitors and dignitaries who had come through Liverpool the whole time who started to visit the mosque. You know, they, they had to be to be seen as an Orthodox mosque over time. At the same time, they had remarkable hostility from uh, around the early 1890s, at least the first couple of years of moving to Brown Terrace, where the mosque was attacked People came in and disturbed the services and so on. And so appearing to be too alien was also another challenge for Quilliam, a genuine challenge for Quilliam's community. And Asmai dismisses these attacks as unimportant, but actually he he was too harsh in that judgment and didn't give proper credence to the pressures that the early community were under. So they were trying to kind of show themselves as somehow being different, but somehow related to Christianity at the same time. So, so the thing is, I think that they were seeing conversion to Islam and practice of Islam, a sort of gradual process of a, 
of, of adhesion to Islamic practices over time. Um, what's certainly the case is if you take the whole history of the Liverpool Muslim Institute, that by, by the time we get to the 1900s, you know, orthodox practice had been established, uh, the Friday prayers and so on, and the form of the prayer. But in the early eight, 1990s, or a decade earlier, really the kind of the major worship was a kind of hybrid of an Anglican Anglican service, style service, with use of the Quran and hymn singing. But the hymn singing would, would use standard uh, Christian hymns, but the words would be changed to get rid of any hint of polytheism and to emphasize uh, Tawheed, um, you know, monotheism. So it, it was a hybrid, extraordinary form of hybrid worship. Um, but over time, as I said, the, the Friday service prayers, Jumar prayers became established. Uh, definitely after 18, 1895, they became established. And and the other thing as well is that um, Molano Barakatullah Bopali, who's also another important figure who's mentioned in the text, he he was sent by the Indian associations, <clears throat> um, by an Indian association to help educate the Muslims in Liverpool, because I think the Indian Muslims in London and further afield were worried about the lack of orthodox practice. And Asmai criticizes Molana Barakatila for not doing a proper job. He says, you know, you should have, you know, they don't seem to know how to make wudu, they don't seem to know the basics of prayer, they're not holding the prayers at the right time. You know, um, there's an organ in the, in the mosque and, you know, it's inappropriate and so on. So, 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 so he criticizes, yeah, he's criticizing the Molana for not doing his job. And you know, the Molana gets very defensive at this point. Um, but, um, you know, who knows what the absolute truth of the matter is that he may have taught them and they weren't that receptive at the time. I mean, it's hard to know all the whole truth of the matter. Mm, I mean, it's so extraordinary to hear about the Sunday services and like they have a fixed time at 7pm that the, the uh, Adhan, the call to prayer goes goes off. And as you mentioned, this organ player and Miss Rosa Warren is, you know, leading it and they're singing a hymn. And I think there's just such a funny moment where Asmai says he gets like an elbow jab because he's singing really badly <laughs> and he just kind of mocks it. And he goes, like, oh, the, the Islamic hymn, it's like an Oh, I Love Sheep from a comic opera. It's actually hugely comical the whole scene that he he lays out because of the tone of, of his language and his words i think i think that's right obviously part of it is amusing him as well as making him sad uh, i think and disappointed as manira was saying earlier but part of him is also amused but i think this is where we probably have to take a pinch mm -hmm. of salt with Asmai's account because i think what's happening here is something very interesting and unique in the history of islam in britain um a kind of you know, this this Britain was still a Christian nation in the late nineteenth century. In a way, it, it isn't now. Um, churches were being built all over these newly industrialized cities. People were brought up uh, believing in one form of Christianity or another. And Liverpool itself had had serious religious sectarianism between Catholicism and uh, Protestantism at the time. Um, so, so the seven o'clock service was the same time that services would be held throughout the rest of Liverpool. So it was another church, if you like, but it was the Church of Islam. They were competing directly. Now, the thing is, the other interesting thing is that Asmai criticizes, you know, in, in this service, there would be a lecture. And this lecture, you know, the, the majority of the lectures at the time were harshly critical of, of Christianity. 
And so you have this hybrid worship, but then you have this critique of Christianity and the promotion of Islamic monotheism. And Asmaya, again, objects to the harshness of these lectures. He thinks that they're, they're not, they're too harsh to, to, they're so harsh that they violate the Islamic ethics of wise preaching and fair preaching and, you know, gentleness in, in promoting Islam. Thank you. Thank you for that. And and how much of a gateway is Asmae's work on the Liverpool Muslim Institute and how significant is it for us now? I think that the great value of this Asmae's travelogue is it really brings this early community to life. And, and the minute that we, as we were translating it, as I said earlier, we realised that this this had to be published because it would it would bring the whole history of that community to life and um, as as you said earlier humanize it and i think that's an important part of the story that we have to tell and when you go back to our great historians like tabari or ibn athir um uh, ibn khaldun and others they they tell the whole story um uh, they tell variant accounts they they highlight different points of view of the same incident and so on um and this kind of uh, brittleness about history and telling a hagiographical version of Islamic history is really a kind of part of our post-colonial lack of confidence, intellectual confidence, um, but it's not part of our grand tradition of history making and history telling. Um, so I think we should recover that, even for the, not the highways, but the byways of the Ummah, like the story of Muslims in Britain. <laughs> mm. And there was also this a logbook of converts that, that Asmay highlights and almost um, all kind of dismisses as well. So, um, Munire, could you just um, tell us more about this this logbook that um, Abdullah Quilliam has? Uh, well, yes, the, this <laughs> very much uh, discussed logbook is a kind of certificate of achievement for Killiam and uh, his propaganda, I think. Uh, that's why Asmai is so much concerned about it, because in Islam, you know, such practice or uh, such a list of, you know, converts and, you know, how many they are and, you know, if they are true or not, their identities and so on, are not, you know, in Islamic ethics, uh, such a big um Concerned, but uh, I think Killiam makes it into a kind of trophy for him, you know, to prove his success and uh, his achievements in England when he's especially uh, meeting other Muslim dignitaries. That's why uh, Asmai puts so much focus on it and, you know, digs out each and every name that appears in it and, you know, even getting hold of the lists becomes a whole issue, you know, yeah. becomes an episode of espionage and <laughs> <Yes>. almost. <laughs> and and he goes on to great detail about, you know, picking everyone in the list and, you know, figuring out if they were really converts or just, you know, uh, figures to fill in uh, the list and so on. And it seems, you know, some of them are not and some of them are uh, really, uh, you know, converted through LMI. Yeah, there's quite a few Christians on there, aren't there? And there are three-year-olds, three-year-olds, <laughs> yes. uh, a three-year-old convert. So, uh, yeah, yeah, it, it becomes a bit of a funny discussion, and uh, I don't know what to say. Yeah, maybe it, I will, uh, sh you know, shed more light on it. 
Yeah, well, if I can come in, I mean, I, I think what it shows is that you didn't have to be a Muslim to be a member of the LMI, which had a kind of five shilling a year membership fee, so far as we're aware. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it shows a more interesting picture, which is of gradual adhesion to Islam over a long period. So people would come, join the services, and over time might sign the logbook of allegiance and, and, and become Muslim. But they were still, I think, in a, uh, many of them were still in a position where they were kind of holding dual identities as Muslims and Christians and may not have solidified right. their identity, identity as Muslims. And I think that's an incredibly important sort of thing to understand. You know, this whole kind of road to Damascus idea, Paul of Tarsus, receiving a kind of having an emotional, a quick emotional reset and instant conversion. You know, quite often conversion isn't dramatic like this. It's even for the majority of Islamic history, the first 300 years after the conquests, um, you know, the majority of Muslims um, in the first three centuries of of the Islam weren't Muslim. A majority of people living under the Arabs weren't Muslim. Um, uh, You know, so... uh, even through our history, conversion has been a gradual process of adhesion to practice and name changes and so on over a long period of time. What, what, what the, the, the difference here is that we were sort of seeing an organic process here of a kind of indigenous take on Islam um, that certainly had its, you know, it certainly was embedded in the local culture. It wasn't terribly well informed. Um, but because of Britain being an empire, Liverpool being a great port of empire, Muslims were coming in and out um, of Liverpool the whole time. You know, the global age in, uh, of empire in which this community was established meant that there was there was no chance for this to kind of gradu- develop gradually over generations. The the critique and discovery of this was obviously instant and happened in real time over the course of less than a decade. So mm. what may have been a process of long practice of adhesion here is compressed into moments because of the world of print and the world of the telegraph, where messages could be sent instantly and newspapers were publishing news from all over the world. You know, th- this community became globally known um, through the power of print and through the steamships and carrying the newspaper through the maritime channels of the British Empire, which at the time held more Muslims than the Ottoman domains did, um, you know, something like 100 million versus 220 oh. million. Um, so so Quilliam knew that he had a ready-made audience for uh, being the Sheikh al-Islam of the oh. British Empire or even of the Dominions, as he cheekily added in 1908 edition of his newspaper. <laughs> Amazing. So, yeah, can we talk about the, the Crescent newspaper and what role it had? What kinds of things were discussed on its pages? Was it was it PR or a propaganda machine? Well, yeah, at least, you know, looking at Esme's account of it, it serves certainly as a propaganda machine or at least a very, very successful PR, I would say. And I think um, LMI becomes victim of its own PR at least in uh, Asmae's uh, travelogue, because the picture is so bright and perfect that um, the author's expectations of the center exceeds the reality in such a great deal uh, that, you know, his eventual uh, critique or like evaluation of the place becomes even harsher. Uh, so in that respect, Crescent is very successful and also unsuccessful 
in projecting the reality and the shortcoming shortcomings of the place, which is you know understandable, of course. Why would you like to do that uh, in a paper that you're printing out? Well, I wanted to actually ask you, how important is the figure of Abdullah Quilliam um, and how influential is he on British Islam and on British Muslims today? I think that that's, it's hard to say. I think that he's gained in, in people have, have, he's become a kind of a founder figure for British Islam, hasn't he? And that's certainly how he, he saw, he and his community saw themselves as founding figures of Islam in Britain. Um, and uh, that Quilliam had been sent to the to the British people to preach Islam to them, um, and that kind of language of comparing Liverpool and its persecutions to to the early Muslim community in Mecca is is a deliberate parallel that's drawn in the pages of the Crescent. Um, so they did see themselves that way, pioneers in that way. I think as for the Muslim, British Muslims now, I think that we allude to this in our closing paragraph of our introduction that we think it's in, while it's important for us to have role models and heroes, we do think that it's important that that's not based on re-mythologizing somebody like Abdullah Quilliam and is based on a kind of fair judicious uh, assessment of the historical record. Um, you know, either, neither to demon, completely demonise somebody like him or to completely adulate him. Uh, and I think both tendencies are very prevalent in our community. Uh, and really what we probably need is just a kind of more sober-minded assessment. And we hope, you know, as entertaining as this book is, um, uh, and I hope that your listeners will read it, um, um, I, I think what we really, what I'm aiming, and I think my co-author is aiming towards is kind of sober level-headed assessment um, uh, to get to that. And I think that will be healthier for our community development. There was a ban on Asma'i's account by the Ottoman caliph. But Munire, how widely circulated was his account before the ban came into effect and what damage did it do? Well, uh, yes, that's true. It was banned in the Ottoman uh, domains. But uh, I think the reason for it could be we are just speculating uh, that, you know, the the caliph, uh, or at least his uh, administration, saw some use in the, you know, growth and um, possible success of LMI, you know, even further success in the coming years uh, in, in some way. That's why they might have banned it. But I think the ban uh, of Esmai's account of LMI has more to do with the political uh, plans or at least intentions of the caliph or uh, Istanbul government. So it didn't really do much damage, then it was controlled because the ban came into effect quite, quite soon. Well, I can say that... Uh, since we don't know how much it was circulated, we can only see that it went into print twice. So that means there was some kind of demand, or at least in Cairo. But um, I mean, this copy, that at least the one I've translated, uh, was bought in Istanbul. That means it reached somehow Istanbul. But I don't, we don't know back then how much it circulated. But um, I think it did not do much damage because uh, before coming across this account of SMI, I did not hear 
any negative um, criticism about Quilliam's uh, LMI Institute, uh, LMI, I mean Liverpool Muslim Institute, in Turkish press or in any of the books about Quilliam's life and so on. So, yes, I think the ban was successful in some way, uh, but we are still able to read and, you know, talk about it. So maybe it was not so successful. <laughs> well, you're exposing the expose again. So this is this is really, really, I mean, it's really sordid stuff. It's very fascinating. Um, so Yahya, what was the fate of the, of the Liverpool Muslim Institute and how did this community kind of survive or did it dissipate? One consequence, I think, is that foreign, large foreign donations dried up, um, uh, after 1895, um, but we don't know uh, to the Liverpool Muslim Institutes, but we don't know. So, so, so we don't know how uh, if, if that's related to the publication of Asmai's expose or not. We don't know for certain. That the timing is certainly suggestive because it drops off after 1895 and there's no large donation after 1895, at least no large donation that was publicized. Um, you know, more, more, so, so the thing is, is that I think that the kind of grandiose plans that Quilliam had that they could set up a, a chapter of the, of the Muslim Institute in every major city in Britain, which was a, a hope that he had, never came to fruition. Also, they were going to build a purpose-built mosque for which plans were drawn up in 1896, and they wanted um, sort of £8,000, you know, that would be a lot in today's money, uh, to build a purpose-built mosque in Liverpool. Uh, but again, they, they weren't able to raise that money. So as for the community itself, um, this is a matter of perennial debate amongst Quilliam scholars, and we haven't really got to the bottom of it, but, um, you know, the, the, the community shuts down in 1908 when Quilliam... Uh, has to leave uh, Liverpool or decides he has to leave Liverpool um, because of being found out for falsifying evidence in a divorce case. I mean, Ron Jeeves brought this out in his his um, biography, you know, more than 10 years ago. So it's not, this is not new, new, a new story. Um, but um, the community disperses uh, and and the, the mosque is sold off by Bilal Quilliam, Quilliam's second son, uh, and, and it doesn't really constitute itself in Liverpool. Um, now, I mean, some of the work we've done, you know, uh, through preparing this volume, I think it shows a kind of, um, it might be the case that there was a sort of a hybrid um, kind of Islam, perhaps not strongly established in the local population. Maybe that's one reason why why the community dispersed. Also, many of the converts have been quite elderly and passed away, or they were the only converts in their families and their families were not receptive. You know, quite a lot of the converts, they, 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 they were refused Muslim burials and unconsecrated ground, and they were buried in Anglican grounds, uh, despite being professing Muslims. So it could be in certain families, the fact that somebody had converted to Islam uh, became a kind of a secret, uh, a short source, source of shame. As Christina Longden's family, they found out, you know, many over a hundred years later that Robert Rashid Stanley was in fact a Muslim, um, and and Christina Longden's done great work in uncovering the story of her great 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 grandfather, who also knew Quilliam and was part of the LMI uh, in its later years. So I think that um, you know, obviously, not enough of an effort was made to consolidate a permanent community in Liverpool. 
Uh, we've only heard of one family that remained in the faith uh, all these through four or five generations and now lives in Cheshire. But other than this family, we're not aware of any others that remained uh, in the faith. Um, so I think, you know, that there are wider issues to reflect on here about um, what does it take to establish Islam successfully and permanently in Britain? What lessons can we learn now in trying to invite the British people to Islam and, and what kind of approach will lead them to, uh, you know, want to embrace Islam and, and spread it to their children and their families and spread it on through the generations? How, how do we go about doing that? And maybe, maybe we have to ask ourselves, you know, is everything that Quilliam did was it the right way to do it or, or, or you know, or, or other, other ways it should be done? Were, was it too unorthodox, too, too hybrid uh, to make an impact? I don't know, really know the answer to these questions, but it's something certainly that we can debate in future. William, in his annual speech, he draws a parallel between Liverpool and, and Mecca. So, you know, he actually is likening the first community of, of Liverpudlian Muslims to the seventh century Muslim community. And as you mentioned, and as it's mentioned in the book, you know, there were some attacks, uh, like on a Friday night, sausages and black pudding were thrown at the, the Liverpool Muslim community. So, so what do you think that he was trying to achieve here with this speech, with these parallels? I think he was trying to give courage um, to his small community um, because they had to stand resolute. And, you know, for them, the stories of the the persecution of the Muslims in Mako struck a direct chord with the, their own experience. And I think it was a source of courage and hope for them. So I think as a leader of that community, he was giving them courage, which I think is entirely commendable. Um a more negative reading of that would also say that, you know, it, it, it was a kind of image of Liverpool Muslims that when, when, when broadcast around the Muslim world, um, brought huge amounts of support and sympathy for the Liverpool Muslims. Um, and, and so I think people, it, it was part, I think, of the, uh, the heart of their appeal, of their cause. To, to Muslims around the world. So I think it's a bit of a double-edged sword, that, uh, in terms of it being, you know, an internal pastoral issue, at the same time being something that would play extremely well, you know, in British India or Egypt or Turkey or, or, or wherever. Mm, yes, yeah, so interesting. Um, and Munira, we, we, we hear um, from Abdullah himself as well as, as, as Asmay. And, you know, what are your own conclusions about both of these figures? How do you feel about them? <laughs> well, um, I think at least in his structural criticism of LMI, um, Asmay was right that this uh, movement is not going to outlive Kilim himself because it's not based on a wakaf, uh, Islamic uh, charitable endowment structure, where the money goes into the, you know, this charitable institution and becomes the property of the institution, not the person. And the founders are uh, constitute the board members of the wakaf, and that's how um, any public institute can survive, just like LMI could. And uh, his prophecy uh, holds true. And as soon as uh, Kilim himself dies, uh, his son sells off uh, all 
the LMI properties or Kilim's properties actually, and uh, the community just dissipates and uh, we don't hear of them again, uh, at least you know as a community. So Esmai was right uh, in his foresight, at least, uh, and his criticism about the structure of LMI, you know, let alone uh, Islamic practices and how unorthodox they were. That's another issue. Um, so it's a bit sad that he was right, but he was, uh, even if he was harsh and, you know, sometimes judgmental about his views. And Kinnim, at least in this account, uh, appears like a very Dickensian figure to me, uh, pragmatist and uh, passionate and hardworking. These are kind of, you know, hard Victorian values. Uh, so we tend to, like Yahya pointed out, we tend to mythologize founding figures uh, in our faith or in, you know, other areas. Um, so I think it might be a bit disappointing to read uh, this account for many people, uh, but uh, we have to acknowledge that, you know, after all, he was a man of his time and a product of his time uh, with his shortcomings and his achievements and his passion to spread uh, the word of Islam uh, in his to his people in his country. That was my take on it. Actually, I'm not even disappointed by this account. I'm just absolutely um, compelled by it. You know, there are scenes that we would never have access to through his account. Like, you know, they're comical ones, they're intriguing ones, there are question marks. Um, you know, and there's even like when when uh, the Crown Prince of Afghanistan visits the Liverpool Muslim Institute, it's almost like a faulty towers scene where, you know, Esme says that it, they hide the organ, they make it look like more more of a prayer space by removing the chairs, and you know, Quilliam introduces the prince to to a female convert called Ethel, and then the prince says, you know, well, what's her Muslim name? <laughs> Quilliam just, I mean, he just plucks one out of the air, doesn't he? Um, no, I mean the thing is, is that I I, I, I just can't wait for the BBC period uh, period drama adaption. They have to, they exactly, have to, exactly. They have to do something on this. This has got to be some kind of like comedy uh, drama, uh, BBC, Netflix, anything. I mean, this is an, an, a compelling, intriguing story, and and you have told it in such a brilliant way with your introduction and with this podcast so thank you so much to both of you Yehubert and, and Manira Zainab for shedding light on such a, an incredible period of, of British Muslim history it's been a, a pleasure to have you on here thank you so much for joining us same here thanks for having us thank you Salam alaikum I've been your host, Ramona Ali. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review and subscribe. And you can explore more works at www.claritasbooks.com.